because we're kind of sharing the work, we're being intelligent together. And there's an intelligence that's between us rather than inside each of us. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, I enjoyed an unhurried conversation with Johnny Moore, who is a visiting tutor at the Said Business School at Oxford University, a partner at creativefacilitation.com, and a co-founder of unhurried.org. I've known Johnny for many years and he's taught me pretty much everything I know about facilitation and I've always been struck how he's helped me and the people and organizations he works with to collaborate better together through a very human approach. Johnny and I had a really interesting conversation recently about how and why we need to slow down and stop interrupting each other all of the time. We talked about his new book called Unhurried at Work and how the art of good conversation can result in a collective intelligence that exists between us rather than in each of us. And inevitably, our conversation then turned to the great pause that we are currently experiencing through the COVID-19 crisis and what we might learn from it. So I started out by asking him, why are we all in such a hurry? Enjoy. I think it's a kind of mass hysteria in a way. I mean, I I think it's the way our culture works. And there's a tendency because of the technology and the way the algorithms of things like LinkedIn and Facebook work. They're sort of designed to stimulate and get instant attention. So we have all these little flashing lights on our computers And there's all this information being presented to us and you open LinkedIn and you feel like, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff I didn't know. Oh good, there are seven steps to good conversations. What are they? Oh, I don't know these. Um, And then in order to make your own impact on LinkedIn, you feel like you better contribute your seven steps to something. We get into a kind of race to the bottom where we're all fighting for attention, partly by assuming that what people want is information. So we add yet more information, or if information isn't our thing, more controversy. It's a kind of tragedy of the commons, really, where we all get into competition with each other. That increases our stress and makes us more likely to join in. What's on my mind hearing you say that is there were always teachers that would sort of exert their authority by sort of shouting instructions over the class but the ones that had the real command of the room would speak more slowly and quietly and people would pay attention. The ones that come to mind of course are the the nasty ones who commanded by being bossy and, and shouting a lot. You know the nicer ones got attention without appearing to make a big effort because they were sort of kinder, better listeners, did seem to be in less of a hurry. I mean right through school and university these are the ones I remember the ones who seem to be interested in me rather than in content that I should be learning. I had a really, really great economics tutor. I don't think I learned anything about economics from him, but I came out of his tutorials feeling better about myself, and I think that was more useful. I think he had a a suitable detachment being an expert in economics that he realised that that might not be the most important thing. So what did he do that was different, perhaps, to your other tutors? What you felt was they were interested in you. 
and what you thought and what sense you were making of the thing. And they were much less attached to you, in effect, ticking boxes or achieving a certain level of accomplishment in the subject. They were kind of interested in what you had to say, but in sort of joining you in making meaning out of something rather than teaching. I like that, joining you in making meaning with something. I suppose it's, it's what I say about these unhurried conversations that I host is what I realised after doing them for a while was there's something very satisfying for us in sharing our experiences together, not being madly attached to changing other people's views or improving on their stories, but experiencing what it's like to be with other people who are surprisingly like us in their different ways, trying to make sense out of this, you know, stressful, confusing, sometimes amazing experience of life. I think a lot of people think they're the only ones who wake up in the middle of the night worrying or wondering about the meaning of life. And it's a relief often to discover that others too have some version of that. I think our culture often leaves us feeling like we might be the defective only ones doing that in the secret recesses of our mind. And when we have a a more relaxed conversation where there's a bit more sharing of experience and a bit less pressure to prove things, we discover, oh, well, we're not alone in that. There was a film with Anthony Hopkins years ago, and the line which sticks with me was that we write to know that we're not alone. I think he was an English teacher Mm. in the film. Or, Or maybe it was we read to know that we're not alone. It was probably the latter, actually. You know, obviously I love connecting people and ideas. That's kind of what this podcast is partly all about. But at the same time, what's on my mind hearing you speak now is, yeah, we want to make connections with other people or realize that we're perhaps have more in common than is at first apparent. But just challenging that for a second, if I may, you know, if we were all the same, it would, life would be boring. I mean, there's, so, there's lots of layers to this. I think I started this mantra of relationships before ideas. I, I was finding myself saying that years ago. And I, you kind of chimed in with that because you wrote mm. something really excellent. Conversations, then relationships, then transactions. I think that was the order. Transactions was last. It was the mm. idea that you want to build trust with people. And then if you create that kind of relationship, ideas and everything else follows. I think there's certain pressure to think that we've got to have brilliant ideas in order to make the connections. And as a result, everyone's trying to build a personal brand. Everyone's trying to write deeply provocative statements. And that's all right up to a point. But I don't think we really connect through ideas first. I think we connect through sharing experience. And I don't find unhurried conversations bland. It's not as if everyone is being the same because everybody's approaching this challenge of making sense of their lives in their own peculiar way. And it's these tiny peculiarities of different people that I'm increasingly finding the most sort of delicious thing about these conversations. I mean, just as the most sort of trivial example of small things resonating. I was on a conversation recently where one of the participants lives in England, but comes from Uruguay, has a Spanish accent, and she was relating her experience of something with a Spanish accent. And somewhere in the middle of it, she said, blimey, which is such a characteristically English word, but she said it with a lovely Spanish accent. And I just thought, well, just that on its own was rather lovely. That little nuance, that peculiarity she brought was delightful and connecting. So it's not about connecting by by being the same. It's connecting partly by being able to sort of relish the similarities and the differences. So you could recognise blimey as a word that I know the meaning of, but said with a Spanish accent in that moment, there was just something really rather lovely about it. When you really pay attention to conversations, I actually think it's these little tiny plays that actually 
kind of resonate for us. It's not the big idea. It's the almost incidental thing that allows us to feel like, here's an interesting fellow creature to relate to. There's satisfaction in that stuff Mm. that I think a world of content is king and up-to-date information makes us think we haven't got time for. But when we haven't got time for it, I think we become a little bit less human. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Rob Poynton, who you originally introduced me to, as you know, lives in Spain some of the time and is married to a Spanish woman. And it was only through learning Spanish. I think he said the Spanish word for breakfast is desayuno, which when you translate it literally means to break the fast. And he thought, oh, that's an interesting word for for breakfast. And then he thought, oh, that's what it means in English as well. And he never never realized it until he learned another language. But you've mentioned unhurried conversations. Just wonder if you could just describe what you mean by that. What is an unhurried conversation? So an unhurried conversation is essentially a conversation where we use one simple device so that people don't interrupt each other, so that there's good turn-taking, so the person speaking can speak essentially for as long as they like about whatever is on their mind and not be interrupted, even if they're like pausing for thought, even if they're saying something very controversial that someone else thinks must be corrected straight away. And only when they feel that they finished does someone else get to have their go. And we do that by using basically a very ancient technique that goes back millennia of having a talking stick or a talking piece. And the person who wants to speak holds a talking piece and they talk until they put it down when there's either a, a silence of short or long duration and it may, or not much silence and someone else picks it up and says what talks about what they want to, which may or may not connect directly to what the previous speaker has said. That's the essence of it. And it's a process I've used for a long time, occasionally as a facilitator. But about five years ago, I decided to start doing them as a regular thing. I've been running them roughly once a fortnight where I live in Cambridge and sometimes in a few other places. Now, quite a lot online as well. So I'm running them more often, actually, during the coronavirus crisis. I've personally found it very uh, powerful to be part of those conversations. And I can't exactly explain why, other than knowing that you're not going to be interrupted means you can collect your thoughts and yeah take your time in a way that's very powerful i've participated in i don't know two or three of these but you've done hundreds i'm guessing what have you observed i think one of the things that was interesting about it was uh, it was only after doing it for three years when i decided to write a blog post reflecting that in the process of writing i realized oh this has changed me i've, I've probably learned a lot from this just from the repeated practice of it You know, among those things, I think it's quite extraordinary how this one simple device so often seems to lead to such a different experience of conversation. And it makes, I think, people realise that we take being interrupted and interrupting for granted as a standard way of engaging. And when that's not happening, it has a remarkable effect. If you're talking, I think it takes some of the pressure off. But I think it also makes you more aware of what you're saying so that you hear yourself think. Actually, to be clearer, you hear yourself speak, which I think in a more normal conversation, you don't even really notice. And so curiously, I think the effect on people who in a normal conversation might appear to repeat themselves and go on and on, often when they're not going to be interrupted, they slow down and they repeat themselves less and they don't verbal on. They're often quite eloquent and succinct. 
And it's quite a discovery to realize that it's the interrupting process that has made people not long-winded. They're not naturally long-winded. When they feel they're really being listened to, their whole experience changes and the experience of, of listening changes. It's interesting how when people talk about what they want to, that by the end of the conversation, which usually lasts an hour or so, you realize afterwards that the apparently different contributions about different things often sort of feel connected at the end, even though you're not ostentatiously connecting one contribution to another as you go along. I think for me, when I'm in these conversations, I get a different sense of what being intelligent is. I mean, it stops being simply a quality that I have and others either do or don't have. And it becomes a, a cool thing. There's a kind of field of intelligence. You feel like you're part of something intelligent that isn't entirely in your head. It's not your IQ that makes things intelligent. It's this connect sense of connectedness to other people. Oh, I like that. Sorry, I, I want to go deeper on that. That's interesting. So, yeah, we, we don't even notice that we're interrupting each other. It's, it's, it's interesting because it's, I almost, I want to say it's a kind of felt experience rather than a, than a concept. But, you know, I would, I would notice that before we had the lockdown when I would host them at a cafe in Cambridge, I would quite often go to that in a bit of a rush, running slightly behind and arrive thinking to myself, oh, why have I committed to do this? I've got a busy day. I'm too busy for this. And I've got too many things to worry about with more or less the dialogue in my head. And then I would notice rather laughably again and again each time I did it, that three or four minutes into the process, I'd go, oh, that's why I do this. It's because this feels so comfortable. All of those worries seem very marginal to me now because I'm getting from this experience, it might well be just listening at that point, a feeling of connection to others that, that I wasn't experiencing on my own. On my own, I was in my panic with just my ideas running around in my head. And with others, it felt like these ideas are being held jointly. It's not, it's not my sole job to be working this out. I'm, I'm working, out, working it out with others. And because we're kind of sharing the work, we're being intelligent together. And there's an intelligence that's between us rather than inside each of us. I think, I might not, I have never checked this out, but someone suggested that the origins of the word intelligence have to gather between, inherently relational. Whatever, whether I'm right or wrong about the uh, etymology, is that the word, etymology of the word? Yeah. I think yeah. that's an interesting way to think of intelligence as, as a relational thing. I didn't know the etymology of intelligence, if indeed it is, means to gather between. So, so what does that mean if we're having an intelligent conversation or we're having... I guess that means we're gathering between well. I mean, I suppose if we think about the conversation we're having, where I said something about a field of intelligence and that excited you and you said, what's that? And then I had to sort of struggle to remember whether I'm right about the etymology and we don't really know. So here we are putting together our little pieces of a, of a puzzle, if you like, and trying to make something slightly new out of it, because I'm I'm not sort of just looking at the list of things I wrote in my book and ticking them off as I go through this podcast with you. Um, and this is what's so nice about, about working with you, Roland, is, is we're sort of puzzling it together in a spontaneous way. Whether I'm right about the etymology or not, we're sort of making something up between us. We're feeling our way. We're not just establishing facts. We're, we're experimenting together in, in making meaning, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. Well, even if it does, I like it. <laughs> It 
it's a funny thing talking about talking, which is essentially what we're doing. We're describing a form of conversation and there's no substitute for experience. And I would urge people to to try out one of these unhurried conversations online or in person when we're allowed to do that again, if possible. But so you just mentioned it briefly, Johnny, you've just written a book about this. I'm just kind of curious what you learned in the process of writing it. What surprised you? I was thinking about what you said earlier about writing being a way of connecting to the world. And I, you know, I think one of the things about writing for me is it often does feel like the opposite of that. It's like, I, I feel like I'm writing into the void and it's often quite a torturous process for me. And this was at times, I would write drafts and then feel frustrated with them and dissatisfied and imagine people not making sense of it or not enjoying it and I'd leave it alone. So I, in not in some Zen way, it became quite a slow process of writing things, sticking them together, feeling a bit frustrated, playing with the order, feeling satisfied for a bit. So it's a very iterative process. And then rather light with unhurried conversations, I realized that books seem to create this expectation in our heads that there is only one right order for the book to appear in. And and that got me very stuck for a while until I allowed myself to write it with a very loose order. And I say in the book, this is made up of fragments really, and you can read them in any order you like because there is no one right order for it. Just as in an unhurried conversation, there's no, there's no fixed agenda. We don't go through subjects in some logical order, which we often think is more efficient. We just allow it to be done in, well, I was going to say fragmentary, but it's not really fragmentary. It's quite holistic, really. And I had to sort of be a bit patient with myself, really, and, and just keep persisting with it until I felt it was sort of good enough to publish. You mentioned Rob Point, and he helped me to publish it, but he quoted me something... Leonardo da Vinci said, and I'm not at all comparing this work of art to anything that he produced, no piece of creative work is ever finished, it's only abandoned. And I laughed at that. And I think that was the point at which I thought, oh, I'll publish it then. (laughs) Because I published it not because I knew it was perfect, it isn't. Uh, Not because I thought it would be the optimal time to sell it. I really had no idea about that. I just felt like I think I need to publish it so that my brain is emptied of it. And then the next thing can come along, you know, and then I'm free to do the next creative project, which I don't know, that might be a second edition, edition of the book or another book or a film or a tea towel, who knows. I think I like a lot of things in unhurried. I don't work them out in my head in advance. I think I realised that, that it feels like it comes as a kind of visceral sense of something. So it's, it's a, what is a 70 page book. And it's also, I think, hopefully, evocative. So I haven't tried to explain absolutely everything I've written. Some things will make partial sense to people and I invite people to read it and make of it what they will. They'll hopefully make a bit more of it than is actually there. That would feel like a satisfying, you know, creative outcome. I I can relate to the, um, I'm not sure if it's adrenaline, but the kind of rush of having completed a project, which then gives you the freedom to pursue the next thing so i look forward to the unhurried tea towel johnny that sounds like a really uh, that sounds like an important follow-up <laughs> so we've done very well not talking about corona covid crisis which i'm pleased about having said that it does feel relevant to this conversation as well because one way or another we've all had this enforced slow down unhurried state of being in the last six seven eight weeks depending on where we are in the world kind of curious what your experience of lockdown has been and what we can take from it. Yeah, I I suppose if we start from what I'm taking from it, because I appreciate everyone's had a very different experience of it, depending on their their place in the world and their their status. But for me, 
I was pretty terrified at the start of it. And I've been quite surprised at how much I've kind of enjoyed it a lot of the time, not all of the time. If you have a sort of a word like unhurried attached to you, as I do, uh, you realise you're under a certain amount of pressure to live up to your reputation, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, smarty pants, I said to myself, you're so good, you're, you talk about unhurried, how are you going to cope with this? Stay at home, don't go out, don't go for coffee, uh, have a lot of your work cancelled. To start with, I found that extremely challenging, and I, I still find it challenging at times, but I've also really appreciated that challenge to really slow down and pay increasing attention to my own experience. and to sort of manage that, the anxiety and the, the boredom that comes with not having a lot of routine things to do. And to begin to realise, actually, I quite like this. There's quite a lot about my everyday life before lockdown. Looking with hindsight, I realised it was probably a bit overstimulating and stressful. And I feel like I've tapped into a, a, a kind of more relaxed, more gentle, less hurried form of creativity. It's not that I've got anything very exciting to show for two months of it, but I kind of have this feeling that the solitude has been, has been good for me. I've had more interesting thoughts about projects I'm working on. So I think it's made me realise even more than I did before how our default culture keeps us overstimulated and rushing and we might think we're enjoying ourselves but looking back I'm not sure that we were or that I was. However this ends and when it ends I don't want to go back automatically to that relatively busy lifestyle. I think there's more satisfaction in consuming less and rushing less and appreciating, to put it, you know, at its most simple, uh, at the risk of sounding slightly pious, uh, appreciating more what we have and spending less time chasing after things that we don't. Yeah, I, I've had, I think, a similar experience uh, to the one that you've described myself. But as this kind of lockdown is starting to possibly light at the end of the tunnel, that uh, things will start being uh, relaxed um, soon. Part of me already misses it. So one thing I've been doing with my family, we go for a little walk around our little local neighborhood after dinner. Not every night, but we've done it probably four nights out of seven, maybe something like that. And it's quite mundane, really. But, you know, we walk down streets. Like we've discovered streets we didn't even know existed that were only you mm. know, two minutes away. And we've, we, I guess we've had conversations we wouldn't otherwise have had. And it's just been really lovely. And, and my son said to me yesterday, when lockdown finishes, can we still do the walks after dinner? And that just kind of melted yeah. That just melted my heart and it made me very happy. I think what this reminds me of is I think it's very easy, isn't it, for all of us to start making predictions about the future and ask ourselves whether we're feeling pessimistic or optimistic. And the danger is we lose sight of, well, what do we want to do? I don't know what the rest of the world is going to do, but I loved hearing that story. There's, sort of, there's a term in a Mediterranean country, Spain or Italy, I think, of passeggiata, which is a time of day towards evening where everyone in the town goes for a walk dressed yeah. in their finery and socialises with all the others. And I realise you've had to do a social distancing version of that with your family. But uh, what a lovely thing to do. And I, I hope you do choose to keep it because that is a choice that we all have. We don't have to go back to normal in quite the same way that we did. And, and maybe I say to myself, look, instead of worrying about what I can't control, which is what everybody else does, I, you know, I can at least be mindful about what I do. And I certainly don't want to rush back to, to the old normal. 
Thanks, Johnny. I really liked what he said about unhurried conversations being a way that other people can join you in making meaning with something. I've participated in a few of these types of conversations with Johnny over the last few years, both online and offline, and they really are a very simple yet powerful format. And so if you're interested, then do give it a try or read his book, both of which can be accessed by his website at unhurried.org. There are a few links in the notes that go with this episode if you want to find out more about Johnny and some of the things that we talked about. Before we go, please can I ask that you rate, comment and subscribe to the podcast and share it with others who you think might like it as well. This will encourage us to keep on making new connections and to find more interesting people to talk to and to share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that's focused on addressing complex and collaborative challenges of our increasingly connected world. To find out more about Liminal, or to subscribe to updates, or even join the community, please visit weareliminal.co. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, keep on having unhurried conversations and connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you, and goodbye. Mm -hmm.